0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and it brings me great joy to welcome each and every one of you to worship with us this morning. Whether you're here in person or on the live stream, we are absolutely thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us. It's our hope and it's our prayer that this is a rich time of exalting and celebrating our Savior Jesus Christ of hearing what he has to say from his word, uh, claims he makes on our lives, and how he wishes to know us and transform us. If uh, you are a visitor, we offer a warm welcome to you. We hope you got the uh, swag bag that's out in the narthex with goodies that are in that. We'd love to get to know you, and we invite all of you, whether you're a first-time visitor, a regular attender, have been a member here for however many years, uh, to fill out the friendship pad that should be at the edge of each row, get it started, pass it down. It lets us know you're here and gives us the opportunity to at least to begin to get to know you. A couple of announcements before we enter into worship. The first thing I need to say is a huge thank you to those of you who made last week and our Easter Sunday and kind of the new beginnings coming out of COVID, everything that we've been doing and excited about just a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Brent and his team on the fellowship team, if we could just put that in a bottle and do that every year for the brunch, that was absolutely amazing. And I'm still full. I feel like I need to call a, a week of fasting for all the bacon I enjoyed. You guys came through incredibly. And so I will not be preaching on gluttony anytime soon. And we'll be going, but what a tremendous time. Then I turned to my left, Amy and the choir. Wow, a taste of heaven, bringing us, you know, absolutely, you know, bringing us to the throne of grace, experiencing the presence of Christ, just in terms of uh, from Monday, Thursday, to Good Friday, to Easter Sunday, what a tremendous, tremendous time. A couple of different things as we're moving forward. The National Day of Prayer is Thursday, May 5th at noon, and our Sister Church Grace Fellowship here in Greensboro is hosting a community-wide National Day of Prayer service. All are invited to come, so we invite you to join with them up at Grace Fellowship. And then on Tuesday, May 3rd at 11 a.m., First Call, which is one of the missions that we support and partner with here in the area, is having a spring fashion show. And as it says here in the note, today is the last day to reserve a spot at the table that the women's ministry will be hosting. Carol Johansson will be out in the narthex. You can purchase your tickets from her, and we would encourage you ladies to do that. And then you've heard me mention, we're going to talk about this even more, Uh, you know, we have a mobile app. It's called Realm Connect. It's a way for us to stay connected as a church as a congregation. It's a way that members and regular attenders can use this to kind of access directory information, upcoming events. You can even do your giving online. Isn't it amazing the world of technology today and all that? If you have an interest in this and we want you to have an interest, we're encouraging you to do this. Stop by the church, call the church, see Yvonne. She will get you completely set up. She'll give you a tutorial don't be intimidated, don't be afraid to do this. You can dive right in in terms of this. So friends, those are some of the things that are going on in the life of the church. And so now as we hear the prelude, let's quiet our hearts. As the psalmist tells us, be still and know that I am God. We are here to worship him, to experience his presence in spirit and in truth this morning. Our whole selves into the very presence of God this morning. God calls us into His presence to worship Him. And so, whether we are kind of on the mountaintop and still experiencing joys or whether we're experiencing sorrows, no matter where we are, we bring our entire selves into God's presence for Him to reveal Himself to us, to challenge us, to comfort us, to give us and challenge us with claims that He makes on our lives. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples, for great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Lord, we praise You that Your steadfast love is great toward us. We count on that. We receive that so that no matter where we are, Through and in Jesus Christ, by your covenant faithfulness, your mercy, your love, you receive us and you welcome us. May we respond by exalting you. May we respond by worshiping you. We pray for your presence, that you will join us this morning. We invoke your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be with us this morning as we praise you, as we sing to you, as we pray to you, as we hear from your word. We pray all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our opening hymn of praise. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. confession this morning comes from Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8. And just to put this into context, the beginning of Psalm 115, the psalmist is saying, Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. Everything that we're to be about, we are to glorify God. Now, here comes our need for confession. How well do we do this? I'll go first not very well. I certainly have a tendency to always be forgetting the Lord. And here's what happens. We were created. I want you to follow this procession with me, this progression with me. We were created to worship God, for God to satisfy the needs of our soul, for God to fill us. When we turn away from Him, we're left with a void. We're left with that emptiness. So we need love and we need forgiveness and we need significance and we need relationship. And when we don't find it in God because we turn away, we seek it out in other things. In the Bible, those other things are called idols. They are things that don't have the power to give us what we legitimately need. We legitimately need love and relationship and meaning and security And significance in life. The problem is, we're looking to save ourselves. We're determined to be the masters of our own fate and to save ourselves. Now, listen in verses four to eight how the psalmist put it. He said, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. That means they can't communicate to us. Eyes, but do not see. We're blind. They can't guide us. They have ears, but do not hear. That means we can't open up to them. They don't listen. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. In other words, these idols, these things, and John Calvin called the heart an idol-making factory. That means every one of us are guilty. Every one of us, this is our tendency. We're doing this all the time. We're creating these things that are powerless to save us. We cannot save ourselves. So friends, I want to invite you to engage with God, to silently and personally confess what are the idols in your life? What are the things that you tend to look to? I've got my own set. This could be a long personal confession of sin. But personally, confess your sins to the Lord. And then in a few moments, we will go into our corporate confession of sin where we will in unison pray together. Let us pray. Friends, let us pray together. Jesus, forgive my sins. Forgive the sins that I remember and the sins I have forgotten. Forgive my many failures in the face of temptation and those times when I have been stubborn in the face of correction. Forgive the times I have been proud of my own achievements and when I have failed to boast in your works. Forgive the harsh judgments I have made of others and the leniency I have shown myself. Forgive the lies I have told to others and the truths I have avoided. Forgive me the pain I have caused others and the indulgence I have shown myself. Jesus, have mercy on me and make me whole. Amen. Friends, now receive the assurance of pardon. This, to me, is one of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture. Because of Jesus Christ, we're able to receive these particular promises from God's Word. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is that not amazing? We're about to sing to the Lord and praise Him, but this passage is telling us He beat us to it. Because of Christ, He is exulting over us with loud singing, and that becomes the fuel and the power for worship. So let me hear us as we worship the Lord. Please stand as we sing before the throne of God. love the line in that particular song, Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. I don't know about you, I think I'll be spending my entire life trying to fully plumb the depths and really understand what it means that Christ is my righteousness. You know, we just came out of confession, and and for me, my own struggles are with performance trying to be good enough, trying to be adequate, a good enough pastor, a good enough preacher, a good enough husband, all these good enoughs. And then I sing this, that Jesus is my perfect, spotless righteousness. Anybody else ever struggle with kind of feeling like I'm not quite doing it well enough? Should we do kind of... Yeah, I saw a few hands go up there. Kind of we're timid. We're like, you know, maybe like that. Should we have a corporate sigh of relief that Christ is our perfect, spotless righteousness, that the truth is none of us are good enough, he's good enough, and we're good enough in him. And you know what he says? He says, come on in, talk to me, you have full access. That's the significance of when he died, the curtain of the temple being torn from top to bottom in two. We have complete access. Let's embrace that access now in a time of prayer, praying together in unison the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in a pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, I thank you that you are in heaven, that you rule and reign over all things, and from your control center, everything is under your perfect control. It can seem chaotic to us, We have wars going on, we hear of tragedies, people we love are facing diagnoses and surgeries and difficulties. Help us to realize you are our Father, ruling from heaven, we hallow your name, and you are with us every step of the way, because Jesus is named Emmanuel, which means God with us. We long for your kingdom to come. We long, I can't wait, I ache for your new world. When every tear will be wiped from our eyes, there will be no more mourning or crying or death or pain, for the old order will be totally wiped away. And so we pray for your kingdom to come. We pray that while we walk in this wilderness, while we journey together, we would do so committed to your will. We want and pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we've confessed our sins, we continue to ask you to forgive our debts as we extend forgiveness to others. May we be a grace-filled congregation, a grace-filled people. That Lord, there'd be no bitterness, no resentment, no contempt amongst us, but because of the grace we've received, We'd extend grace to others. We ask for our daily bread for ourselves and for others. We continue to pray for Doug Hesse going through his chemo treatments and Margie Shepard in the hospital. And we pray for Mike Roberts tomorrow facing spinal surgery. We lift him before you, he and Peggy, and pray, Father, that you would guide the surgeon's hands May your peace rule in their hearts. Father, there are so many others we could lift up. We ask that you would be with all who are afflicted. And for those of us that are experiencing turmoil or chaos or pain, but it may not be spoken, it may not be stated. Maybe we're here and we're experiencing fears or anxieties or doubts or regrets. Lord, we look to you. Jesus, you are the bread of life. Teach us to feed off of you. And Lord, we ask that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That we would be a people set apart. We pray all these things, acknowledging that yours and yours alone is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: For our walk in this world They resound with God's own heart Oh, let the ancient words impart Words of life, words of hope Give us strength, help us cope In this world Wherever we roam Ancient words will guide us home Ancient words ever true Changing me and changing you We have come with open hearts Oh, let the ancient words impart Sage came to us through sacrifice, oh, heed the faithful words of Christ. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world, they resound with God's own heart, Changing me and changing you We have come with open hearts Oh, let the ancient words impart Have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient word impart.
0: As we approach God's Word this morning, let us pray together. Father, thank you. As Harold sang, you speak to us with ancient words, an ancient word that has a contemporary and a very practical significance and relevance to us here today. And Lord, I thank you that My job is not to make your word relevant. It is relevant. I pray that we would demonstrate its relevance as we look at your word this morning. For your word's own testimony about itself is that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to dividing, joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It accomplishes what you set for it to accomplish. And so your word is alive, so I pray as you speak to us with an ancient word written So many centuries ago, show us its meaning for our lives here in 2022. Show us Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are going to look this morning, we'll get back to Romans next week. I wasn't finished with Easter yet. I don't know about you all, maybe I didn't have enough bacon. I don't know what it was. Yes, I had plenty. But I wasn't finished with Easter Easter is the high point of the church year. It is the high season, and in the church calendar, see I'm going to introduce you to this. there is a season of the church church's life known as Easter tide that goes from Easter Sunday through the fifty days up to Pentecost Sunday now I'm just teaching see I'm doing a short shrift because I'm only teaching one Sunday on it, but it is a time in that historically in the church's life, and you do understand that the church globally, historically, they use the church calendar, the church year, as a discipleship tool, okay? It is kind of a tool meant to teach us all of the particulars of the gospel and Christ's life and ministry, so Advent through Christmas and Epiphany leading up to Lent, Leads up to Holy Week that we just came through in Easter, and then you have Tide that time, and because it is the high point of the church's season, the church's life, it is a time of joy and celebration and feasting. Maybe we should have a brunch every Sunday. Brent didn't hear that, did he? But we should have parties all the time celebrating the resurrection. It's also an opportunity to do something else. You know, you know you had that period of time where Jesus was risen from the dead, he was raised from the dead, and he not yet ascended into heaven. And so what he's doing, we have the scriptures recording for us several interactions between himself and his followers, his disciples, those he was equipping, those he was preparing for mission. He was going to ascend into heaven, And then he was going to pour out his Spirit. He talks about this in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything. There's a lot that can be taught there. Not just the things we like, but teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. And then he says, Behold, and I love that word in the Scriptures, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So somehow when he's ascended into heaven and pours out his Spirit, it's the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit and Jesus are, even though they're two different members of the Trinity, there's a lot of mystery here, they are identified in their ministry and what they're doing. So we never do what we're doing alone But in between that, you've got several of these interactions, and we're going to look at one of them this morning, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. And I love this because you know what? This is so ordinary. You know what Jesus is doing with his disciples? He's having brunch. Now, they ate healthy. They had fish. And as we're going to find out, a lot of fish. Okay, I don't know. I'm hoping to have bacon with Jesus someday. but so ordinary. He's having a meal with his disciples. Here's the risen Jesus teaching them lessons about his mission and about what they are to carry on because he has said to them earlier, John chapter 20, verse 21, he says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You know why we're still here? You know why you're still alive today? You're part of a church that has been sent to Lake Oconee. That's why we exist in 2022 in this particular place, because Jesus has, as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus has sent us. That's what it means to be missional, by the way. It's not a cool word a bunch of folks made up. The word missional just simply means sent. We are a sent church. We exist for the sake of the community. We exist not for ourselves, but for the sake of others. And this morning... This morning, and I'll probably do a lot more teaching on this in the months to come, but this morning we'll get just a a glimpse, one particular passage of Jesus' interaction with his disciples, equipping them for mission. So let's turn our attention to Scripture, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. It begins, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. See how matter-of-fact that is? Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, one hundred and fifty three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. All right, Eastertide. We're looking at some of the interactions. This is one of the interactions between the risen Jesus, the glory, you know, before he's ascended into heaven, and his disciples. John 21 happens to consist of two passages of these interactions with the risen Jesus. The two passages go together. Both have to do with Jesus' resurrection appearance to his disciples. The text tells us it's his third such as appearance. This one deals with the large catch of fish and immediately following with Jesus' reinstatement of Peter with the mandate to feed the, ship, the sheep. Now this morning we're going to only look at The first. I'm mentioning this kind of in the introduction because the two parts go together. The two parts basically are covering mission in the kingdom of God. And mission in the kingdom of God consists of evangelism and discipleship. In a simple, ordinary way, evangelism represented by cast out of the boat your net. Even though you haven't been successful, you're tired, you've been fishing all night, you've been trying, what's going on? Cast it out, and then such a large fish, as a matter of fact. How do we know this is true, by the way? Somebody bothered to count the fish. 153 of them miraculously are caught. That's evangelism. Go out. What was the original call to the disciples, by the way? What's our original call? Follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And then, and I'm just giving you in the introduction, because I know you're dying to get back into Romans, so I'm not preaching on the second half of the passage next week. We'll get back into Romans. But what's the second part of it? Discipleship, where Jesus restores Peter, reinstates Peter, and gives him the mandate, feed my sheep. Because both parts are necessary and part of our missional mandate. Mission in the kingdom of God consists of both what we traditionally called evangelism, going out, and as God's representatives, reaching His people, and discipleship, shepherding, feeding, nurturing those that God reaches through our evangelistic ministry. Both are necessary Both are indispensable. So as we look at this text, what lessons do we learn from this? I love this. John begins his account this way. He says, Jesus appeared to the disciples again by the Sea of Tiberias, and it happened this way. He then tells us who's present, kind of gives a roll call. This is so ordinary. What are they doing? They're out doing life. They're hanging out together. They're fishing. They're working. And all of a sudden, there's Jesus on the shore. He shows up. He joins them. He's being Emmanuel, God with us. John tells the story as if it's nothing spectacular, but yet there are some significant lessons learned in there. We're going to look at two of them. We're going to look at the beginning of mission, and we're going to look at Jesus' commitment to mission. The beginning of mission. I want to ask you what may at first glance sound like a silly, ridiculous question. Why is this passage here in the canon of Scripture? Why is this particular passage here? I mean, why did John include it? And I don't want us to give the silly answer, well, because God inspired it. Of course He did. But I want to challenge us to look a little deeper. See many scholars ask a question like that and especially the critical scholars don't think John 21 belongs in the canon of Scripture. They say, look, why add this lengthy conclusion when the climax was reached at the end of chapter 20 with the resurrection and John explaining why he wrote the gospel? Well, see, John is writing what you might call an epilogue. And an epilogue usually has the purpose of tying up some loose ends, loose ends that need to be tied up even after the climax of the story has been reached. And there is a giant loose end that hasn't been tied up yet. His name is Peter. See, think about it. Where did we leave Peter? We know he rushed to the tomb after Mary Magdalene brought the report that Jesus' body was missing. We know that he was in the upper room when Jesus appeared. But we still haven't dealt with one major piece of the picture, and that is his shameful denial of Jesus while Jesus was being tried. What becomes of their relationship? What happens to their intimate friendship? What is to become of Peter? What happens to him? And while this text doesn't give us all the answers, you have to look at the rest of the passage, we do get a glimpse into Peter's heart in the story before us. Verse 3, Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat. That night they caught nothing. Let me ask you a question. See, you biblical scholars, you, does this sound familiar with any other story that is found in the Gospels? The answer to that is yes. Luke chapter 5 tells the story of another unsuccessful fishing journey. In Luke chapter 5, we read he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that he is Jesus. So Jesus obviously borrows Peter's boat in order to teach from it, and he asks him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked so hard all night. We haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their, to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord! I am a sinful man! Now at first glance, these two accounts, Luke 5, John 21, sound a little similar. But there are some striking differences which we need to get into. So these are two separate incidents. But for now, I want you to notice Peter's response, which is something I'm calling the beginning of mission. See, how does Peter respond when confronted? In Luke chapter 5, when he's confronted with the glory of the Lord, when he personally witnesses the omnipotence of Jesus. Go away from me, I can't handle that. I can't get near you. It kind of reminds you of like Mount Sinai, right? Better not touch that mountain. Better not come near. I'm a sinful man. R.C. Sproul says of this, he says, this is the universal response of people when they recognize the character of Jesus. It is the universal response of the creature who beholds the unveiled glory of the holy. Our basic nature is to put as much space between Christ and ourselves as we can. When Peter realized the one with whom he was dealing, he was overwhelmed with a sense of his guilt. He wanted relief from that guilt more than anything else, and that meant he wanted space. He wanted distance between Jesus and himself. I can't help but think this is a lot of times, I think, the reason, whether we understand it or know it or not, why we don't get near to Jesus. We know intuitively, we know... This is part of eternity being created in our hearts that Ecclesiastes talked about. You get near to God and it is dangerous space and the holy cannot dwell with the unholy. So what do we do? We avoid. We don't get near the glory of God. See, this is not unlike the case study we have of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Probably my favorite passage, which is why I come, get used to it, I come back to it all the time and I won't apologize. I'll continue to come back to it. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is confronted with the glory of God, he says, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, what is Isaiah doing, and what is the beginning of mission? It is to see the glory of God, and as a result, to see your sin. Now notice I didn't say that's the end of mission, but that's the beginning of mission. That's why evangelism and mission is not a program. It's at the heart of the gospel. And the gospel begins with God. It's God and His glory. To see God in Christ's glory, and thus to see your sin, to see your need, to see your emptiness. So what is Isaiah doing? He's pronouncing a curse on himself. He's coming to the end of himself. To see your sin is to not be able to tolerate yourself. Jack Miller in his book on repentance puts it this way. He says, the truly repentant sinner has discovered through the renewing work of the Holy Spirit that all his doing is full of sin. His doing is the source of his wretched emptiness, his black depression, his self-despising. But now he's come undone. Look at the picture he's painting. You become unraveled. He turns from his sinful doing and trusts in what Christ has done. This is the essence of repentance. Let's apply this. You want to know why we don't experience regular, ongoing, continuous renewal? Renewal that's normal, a way of life. You want to know why we only have a small Jesus and live a small Christian life? Why we struggle with things like witnessing and mission? Why we struggle with worship, sometimes sometimes our prayer life, have you ever experienced this, can be stale and lifeless? Why relationships might be nice and cordial but not intimate and life giving? We don't want to die. We don't want to die to ourselves. We don't want to experience what Isaiah and Peter experienced. Realize this about yourself. You want to be, you insist to be in control. And so you refuse practically and relationally before interactions, before prayer, before worship, all this. We want to remain intact together, not come and be like the tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18, who beat his breast, couldn't even look up to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Imagine if that comportment, that basic comportment of helplessness and powerlessness fueled us outward in our relationships with others. See, to come undone is just too drastic for us. But that's just the beginning of mission. And this is where... We now need to see some of the differences in Peter. And let's look at the second point, Jesus' commitment to mission. Look with me. Let's pick up at verse 4. Okay? So, so far we got the similarity. Unsuccessful fishing trip. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fa- Any? Fa-? I love this. He's hanging out with them the resurrected Jesus. Guys, how's it going? Catch any fish lately? Of course, they answer, no. He says, well, let's try one more time. Cast the net now on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which, by the way, that is always how John refers to himself, John refers to himself. And just the I love the humility in that. Sir, it's, he's being humble because he's going, I'm so humbled to be loved. That disciple that Jesus loved. I'm beloved of Jesus. That's incredible. It's mind blowing. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. He was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Now, thus far, verses 4 to 6, I read verses 4 to 7, but verses 4 to 6 sound just like Luke 5. Unsuccessful fishing. Jesus gives instructions. The disciples follow, and lo and behold, such a large number of fish, 153, are they are unable to haul it in. But then in verse 7, you have where the story, the accounts are a little different, because remember earlier, Peter wouldn't let the Lord near him. Go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. And we said that was the beginning of mission. Here, the fact, what does he do? He's going toward Jesus. And that makes a difference in the two incidents. See, look, when people spontaneously go swimming, what do they normally do? They take off their clothes. They don't put them on. So when Jesus, when he goes to Jesus, what does Peter do? He wraps a garment around himself. He covers himself. But not to keep out the cold. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They tried to cover themselves because of their shame. Now what does Peter do? He covers himself and boldly goes into the water. He plunges right into. What does the text say? He threw himself into the water. Here comes bold Peter. What makes the difference? The resurrection of Jesus. See, again, we have to look at these two passages, this one and the one to follow, where Peter's restoration is completed together. And here, look at what you have, Peter covering himself. What does the resurrection accomplish? In Romans chapter 4, Paul tells us that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, and raised to life for our justification. The resurrection is what makes the difference. See, what does the resurrection accomplish? Our justification. And what is our justification? It is our covering with His righteousness. Your shame, if you are a believer, if you're united to Christ by faith, Your guilt, your regrets, your shame, your feeling of inadequacy, your feeling of insufficiency, of not being enough, is covered with Jesus' righteousness. That means you're covered with the righteousness, the beauty, the holiness, the perfection of Jesus. Your shame, your guilt, your nakedness is removed, and you are clothed with His glory and His Beauty. Now, how does this show us Jesus' commitment to mission? See, when we get to the purpose and power of the resurrection, it always propels us outward in mission. Peter's only beginning to get this. We still have the completion of his restoration, Pentecost, and the outpouring of the Spirit. Notice what he does when you get to Acts 2 and the outpouring of the Spirit. What's the first thing he's doing? He's boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The resurrection and the gift of the Spirit propels the people of God outward in mission. We need to quit apologizing for sharing the gospel, have more confidence, and realize, believe that Jesus truly wants to love and save people. That Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. And you want to know what our evangelism is? We're simply going where Jesus goes. We are following him where he goes. And what is Jesus doing? He is seeking and saving the lost. And we're going, I'll follow Jesus. We're not making something up on our own. See, what is it that will get us going? Remember, after Isaiah was confronted with his sinfulness, and then he's confronted with the grace of God, how did he respond? The Lord says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. Grace triumphs. You want to know the only thing that's undefeated? Grace. Grace wins. And what true grace does is it propels us outward. It is a power that propels us outward. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus said to his disciples... Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are ripe for harvest. This is the simplest application there is, but maybe the most difficult. Church, do you know what we need to do? Quit looking down and lift up our eyes and look out at all the neighborhoods, the schools, the families, the people. Jesus is telling us they're white for harvest. He's saying, he's the Lord of the harvest. Who will go for me? who will proclaim this gospel. This is what grace does. I haven't given you a Lord of the Rings illustration in a while. I need to repent. We're due for one. In the Lord of the Rings, Frodo is talking to one of the elves at the very outset, the beginning of their journey. He's still in the shire. He's still in his own land, his own home. But he's met his first danger. And he asks the elf, Has this danger reached even my own home? Can't I even walk in my own homeland in peace? Is nothing secure anymore? Ever felt that way, by the way? How often do we watch the news and walk around and say, what is this world coming to? Can I even live in Lake Oconee and feel safe? Can I even be here? The elf answers him, the wide world is all about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you can't, cannot forever fence it out. Friends, the world is all about us. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so I am sending you. Do you know what that means? We are stewards of God's kingdom. We are here not by accident, but because God in His sovereignty and His providence has placed us in this time, at this place, To be agents of the rule and reign of God. We are called to demonstrate and be agents of the rule and reign of God. Are we trying to fence ourselves in? What are we afraid of? Is God for us or is he not for us? Why don't we allow ourselves to be gripped by God's glory, our need, his grace to us, and let that grace propel us outward? Jack Miller used to put it very simply. He says we have two choices, risk or rust. The wide world is about us. We can try to fence ourselves in, but we can't forever keep it out. Do we go out in the power of the resurrection into the community to serve? Or are we just here waiting, fencing ourselves in, saying, well, they can come in if they want to, but we won't go out of our way to go and get them. See, what does the resurrection compel us to do? 2 Corinthians 5 Paul writes, the love of Christ compels us. Being convinced of this, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, the wide world can be all about us, and we can try to fence it in. I pray that we'd even ask ourselves these questions. Are we trying to fence it in? Or are we letting your light shine, going out into the neighborhoods, going out and meeting people, going out and hanging out with people, and seeking to reach people? Lord, you taught that the resurrection leads to mission. May we be a missional church. Teach us what this means for us as you have placed us here providentially at this, in this time, at this place. We thank you for this community that we are privileged to live in. Help us to love this area. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, Shine, Jesus, Shine. God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen. Amen.